My name is Will McHenry. I'm the program associate at Ponars Eurasia. And with us today is Chris Miller, assistant professor of international history at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. Chris, thank you so much for joining me on this Ponars podcast. What is Putin's economic strategy? I'd say this strategy has three key components or three pillars of Putinomics as the way I'd describe it. The, the first is to make sure that uh, the macroeconomic situation is balanced and stable. The second is, is carefully using social policy uh, to cultivate support from certain groups. Uh, and third is to uh, use the state and the political system to control certain key industries, but leave others alone. Um, and so if you look at the first pillar of macroeconomic stability, uh, there's been a, a very long-term strategy to make sure that Russia doesn't have large budget deficits, that it has a balance between taxing and spending, that inflation doesn't get too high, monetary policies run in a relatively conservative manner, and the goal of all of this is to make sure that Russia stays financially balanced uh, and doesn't face a situation where financial pressure forces the political class to make a decision it doesn't want to make. I mean, that's by far and away, that's the overriding priority of economic policy. Uh, but standing underneath that are two other pillars. The, the second of these pillars is uh, creative use of social policy. Creative, I say, not in the sense that I think it's had good outcomes, but that it's had effective outcomes given the Russian government's uh, priorities. And their priority has been to solidify support from groups that have shown in the past they are willing and able to protest. And what's interesting is that some of the biggest protests, especially in the 2000s against Russia's government came from pensioners who were unhappy when their pensions were cut or changed in ways that they didn't like or didn't understand. And so as a result of that, Russia has, uh, for most of Putin's time in office, tried to increase pension payouts almost every year, often by quite large amounts. Uh, and it's done that uh, and funded that while it's presided over stagnation or even declines in certain cases and other types of social spending. So spending on health and schools is underperformed, which has created up the money that was necessary to increase pensions. Um, and the third pillar of, of Putin's economic strategy is, is focusing only on controlling key industries and letting other ones more or less alone. And the key industries have been the energy sector, which is the source of most of, most of the natural resource wealth in Russia and the financial sector as well, which is important in terms of controlling lending to different firms. But other sectors from supermarkets to steel, as I read about in, in the book, are, are more or less left alone, They're, which isn't necessarily a good thing because they often face poorly designed regulatory regimes, but the government doesn't really think about them very often. And those three pillars, I think, have been relatively durable over time um, and have given not only Putin himself, but the elites, more generally, the results that they've wanted. How well has this strategy worked? Well, it, you know, again, it depends on uh, whose perspective you're looking at it from. So if you're looking at it from the perspective of a average Russian, I think the strategy has worked somewhat well, though there are probably better strategies out there, strategies that focused more on attracting investment, focused more on investing in human capital and healthcare, for example, um, strategies that focused more on ra raising wages in a sustainable manner. Um, but average Russians don't play a big role in the policymaking process in Russia uh, because of the way Russian institutions are structured. Uh, and for the Russian elite, the political class, this strategy has worked brilliantly. Uh, they've managed to stay in power for 20 years without any sort of real pressure on them. Uh, the existing elite has managed to um, achieve its foreign policy goals to a certain extent, which have been quite expensive in achieving, if you look at Ukraine and the sanctions that, uh, that sparked, without having to face economic pressure on them. Um, and so from the elite's perspective, I think the strategy has worked well, um, which is a different thing than saying it's been an effective strategy for, 
for the living standards of the population overall. What are the effects of U.S. economic sanctions on Russia? Well, there's no doubt that economic sanctions have decreased Russian economic growth, uh, particularly when the first round of sanctions was applied in 2014. They contributed to the decline in the ruble against the dollar. They increased inflation. Um, and there's, there's also no doubt that in the long run, foreign investment will be lower in Russia due to sanctions, not only because of the specific restrictions that the sanctions impose on investment, but also because of this broader sense that investing in Russia is risky because you never know uh, as a foreign investor, will there be more sanctions in the future? So most estimates, there's a pretty wide skew of estimates as to how much um, of an economic effect sanctions have, but uh, most estimates suggest that there's a tangible effect on GDP growth going forward, which in turn will have a tangible effect on Russian living standards, on the Russian government budget, on Russia's ability to spend money on different priorities. Um, but there's also um, not much doubt that the current sanctions that are in place and even the, the new sanctions that are being considered in Washington right now um, wouldn't uh, have the, this magnitude of economic effect that would force an economic um, an economic crisis that would in turn change Russia's foreign policy. The effect has been manageable for Russia thus far. And the sanctions were designed with that in mind. They weren't designed to destroy Russia's economy. They were designed, if you talk to the policymakers who implemented them, they were designed to impose a, a, a discrete cost on Russia that was going to be used as a bargaining chip. And they've, they've had that effect uh, certainly, but the, the size of the bargaining chip hasn't been large enough to convince <laughs> Russia to change its foreign policy. And when you look at the new sanctions that are being discussed right now, sanctions on Russian sovereign debt, for example, my, my sense is that those would increase the size of the bargaining chip to a certain extent, but it probably wouldn't be large enough uh, to convince the Russians to, uh, to compromise on the key issues that, that they don't want to compromise on right now in Ukraine and Syria and elsewhere. Great. Chris, fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. Thanks for having me.